0: All right, so we have uh, kind of a slideshow presentation for you this morning, and whereas a couple of weeks ago when we started, it was kind of more of an expository message on the Heart Foundation of Biblical Counseling. Hi, Doreen, welcome back. Um, Whereas it was more of an expository message, uh, today and last week was kind of more of a workshop. Today's going to be even more of a workshop, right? It's almost almost academic. Uh, um, You know, I am an academic person by nature, so I'll I'll be careful not to kind of... uh, Be too academic, but there are some academic um, aspects to uh, the discussion that we're going to be having uh, this morning. But before we begin, I wanted to talk about the case study. So we have introduced some case studies uh, from the first week, where we were discussing, like, how would you counsel uh, in this situation? So we had a case study, and so if you turn on your handouts to the back side, you'll see case number, case study number two. And I just wanted to kind of walk through that briefly before we begin our. main session or our teaching session for this morning. So case study number two, Michael and Mary have been going to your church for many years. They've brought their 15-year-old daughter Mabel to you for counseling. They're having problems parenting her. Anytime we ask her to clean up her room or do some chores, she flies into a rage, hurls profanities at us, and we end up screaming at each other until she slams her bedroom door and locks us out. So again, we don't have, we're not going to get into the entire thing, but just there's some very pointed questions about Uh, how would you handle the situation? Uh, Number one, what are some verses that come to mind that might be useful in your counseling sessions? So I think for me, the things that come to mind automatically, and it's sort of a trick question, but the things that come to mind automatically would be things like Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians chapter four, verses 25 and 27, therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Ephesians chapter four, verses 29 and 32 A similar. Uh, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So, those are just a couple of verses that come to mind that may apply to this situation. But I think more importantly, and we have to be careful about this, is, is the perspective of where does this family stand before the Lord? What is the relationship before the Lord? Because if we just simply throw Bible verses at people, and if they don't have a right vertical relationship with the Lord, then there's no chance that they're going to have a right horizontal relationship. And these verses can just become burdensome and actually legalistic and just uh, um, focusing on behavior modification rather than heart modification. So it is kind of, question number one is a little bit of a trick question. I've been tricked by this before, this is why I I wanted to to trick you guys with it too. Um, Some verses that come to mind, but first, even before you get there, you you wanna inquire about and investigate what is this family's relationship with the Lord? Are they believers or unbelievers? So we wanna seek to understand the heart motives that lead to simple, this is question number two, where would you start in your counseling session with the family? So as you do in all counseling, you do a lot of data gathering. You want to assess the situation. You want to find out information, get more data, uh, get some more information, get a better perspective on what's going on. You would ask questions about where each member of the family stands in their relationship with the Lord. Are they believers or unbelievers? Seek to understand the heart motives that lead to the sinful behavior. So in the case study that just, again, it's an artificial construct, but uh, uh, there's a number of behaviors that you see. And it's not just about the behavior. We want to try to get to the heart. What is the heart situation going on that's leading to this conflict, parenting issues, profanities, screaming, uh, anger, all those kinds of things? All right. Um, so this is hard work, and it takes patience and practice and insight, right? Especially when you're, especially when you're counseling kids, right? I, I ask my kids all the time, well, "Why did you do that, Lane?" Like, what's the number one answer? "Why did a kid do that?" I don't know. I don't know exactly. Right? All the parents know that, right? I don't know. So um, it it behooves us as parents and as biblical counselors to kind of dig into as as much as we're able to. Sometimes they don't know. um, And sometimes we have to kind of point out their sin to them. All right, question number three. What are some potential issues that you can identify or at least see the need to investigate based on what little you know already? So it's a very short artificial scenario that I've I've thrown out. But just based on that, what are some areas that you need to investigate, right? So uh, letter A, number one. What is their understanding of the gospel and how it applies to everyday interactions and all of their issues? Right? So for each person, you have to try to understand what is their understanding of the gospel and how do they apply it to their life? Some of the issues that you can see, obviously, is the issue of speech. How are they speaking to one another? What is their uh, tone? What are they saying? What are the words? What is their posture? How do they communicate with one another? How do they r- resolve conflicts with one another? Right? Is there a true... Um, biblical forgiveness that's taking place when there's conflicts in the family. So you have to kind of investigate uh, those things. Next uh, is authority, right? Is God and his word the authority in this home, right? Is God and his word, is it the authority for um, the parents, for Michael and Mary? Are they operating based on God's authority or are they operating based on their own authority as parents, right? Well, you need to do this because I said you needed to do this, right? Is Is that how they're using, are they trying to motivate their daughter what is her name? Mabel? Uh, Mabel, um, based on their own authority or on the authority of the word of God? Uh, are Michael and Mary submitted to God in his word, right, as individuals? And then how about Mabel? Is she submitted to God in his word? And that's uh, a good starting spot. Uh, anger issues need to be explored. Why does um, you know, a simple request um, degenerate or devolve into a shouting match? Um, anger issues need to be explored probably on both sides of the equation, on parents' side and also on uh, Mabel's side. And then expectations. Um, we need to discuss and set up expectations for Michael and Marion. Uh, as we've seen, um, one of the main conflicts, well, at the heart of any conflict usually, is a, a difference in expectations, right? Where, where one party has a different expectation than the other party, that expectation is not being met, and so there is a, a conflict. All right, uh, expectations for Michael and Mary as parents. Are they caring for Mabel? Are they shepherding her? Are they um, ministering to her? Are they pointing her to Christ and the gospel? And expectations for Mabel, right? And again, whether or not Mabel is a believer will inform the expectations and the consequences in some measure. And if Mabel is not a believer, right, it's okay to still have consequences, right, to her actions, uh, but there's always a heart or an idea towards shepherding her, sharing the gospel with her. All right, so that's just kind of the basics of uh, case number three. I guess there's more things in there, obviously, but just wanted to throw those things out for your consideration. And uh, we are gonna continue on into our slides. Let's see this, oh, case number number two, and then slides. So uh, last week, we did kind of introduction to biblical counseling, part one. Uh, We talked about the need for biblical counseling. We talked about the definition of biblical counseling. essentially is discipleship. We talked about the seven distinctives of biblical counseling. We talked about, uh, number three, the theological basis of biblical counseling. Again, this was all last week. Number four, we talked about the fundamental and irrecoverable errors of psychology. And number five, we talked about the call to biblical counseling. I think number six was on the outline. We didn't get to it, Christ's example of biblical counseling. But Lord willing, we'll get to this in September. We're going to spend some time uh, in Matthew chapter 6. I've been preparing that message this week uh, for Matthew chapter 6, Christ's example of biblical counseling. Again, Lord willing, we'll do that in September. Uh, I just wanted to mention, uh, for number four, fundamental and irrecoverable errors of psychology. There may be in a congregation our size, people who have been to secular psychology before, and so I I wanted to just to to make a caveat and an understanding that um, counseling can help. right? Secular counseling can help. Um, There are, as I mentioned, irrecoverable errors of psychology and secular counseling, but to go in to talk to somebody about their problems, to have them empathize with you, show compassion to you, uh, understand the issues, that can certainly help, right? Uh, and I would say it can help, but only in the short term. Um, but because of the fundamental um, doctrines of psychology, even though it can help in the short term, um, it is going to end up in the wrong place, right? They cannot diagnose sin problems. They cannot diagnose uh, biblical issues because, as we'll see a little later, those things are spiritually appraised. So I, I just wanted to um, use that word of clarification. All right, um, so to, for today, we will be talking about uh, Introduction to Biblical Counseling, Part Two. And uh, you have the outline uh, in your handout here. Uh, number one, the secular perspective of mental health disorders. And I want to introduce you to something called dsm 4 And I'll explain what that means in a little bit and run through a number of these um, fairly common Uh, quote-unquote diagnoses or disease, I'll say quote-unquote diseases, that we see in mental health. And uh, we're gonna go through them fairly fast because I don't think it is that important, but I do want us as believers to understand what the world calls these problems. We want to be equipped and not intimidated when a physician or a psychologist or psychiatrist or a therapist says, you know, you've been diagnosed, or this person has been diagnosed with this disease or this disorder. Uh, I want us as believers to be equipped to understand what are they talking about, where does that come from, and why it's wrong, okay? Uh, next, we'll be talking about God's perspective, and so we'll be talking about what the, the Bible has to say about um, uh, these in general. Uh, number three, we'll be talking about the mind-body connection, and that might be about as far as we can go. We may not even get that far, just to let you know, we're not, we're not planning to finish this whole uh, session. We'll finish it up next week, um, but uh, this is kind of the general outline. All right, um, and then you can see the, the, the rest of the, the, um, the points here. We're not gonna get to those uh, today, I think. All right, so let me pray, and then we'll get into um, um, Roman numeral one, secular perspective, Right, right? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for the chance for us to be here together and just to talk about uh, what the world considers mental health issues, God. And in our world, our secular world, um, they have a lot of what they call wisdom. But we know that true wisdom comes from you. True wisdom is found in your word and is pl- applied by the Holy Spirit. And so the things that we talk about this morning, God, are spiritually appraised. And we know that this world cannot comprehend it. The world could not comprehend you. Um, and so we ask, God, that you would allow us as, as believers to uh, even lay aside the influences of the world. We have been inundated continually by secular psychology in our everyday lives. And we pray, God, that you would help us to look at our world through the lens of scripture, through the lens of your Holy Spirit and your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might have a right and a proper understanding of the struggles that many people face, that we all face, and that we'd be able to apply the truth of the word, the truth of the gospel to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, Roman numeral one. Oh, sorry, let's do this already. Roman numeral one. Secular Perspective of Mental Health Disorders, and we're gonna be contrasting that with the biblical perspective, okay? Introduction to the DSM-IV. The DSM-IV stands for, you see that on the slide here, um, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual of Mental Health Disorders, right? Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fourth edition in particular, uh, although I think they're on, the, I don't know, the fifth or sixth edition now. And the reasons that I wanted to introduce this to you is because it's helpful as Christians to know the terminology that the world uses for certain sins, and we want to have familiarity with the circular terminology uh, to prevent us from becoming intimidated by these diagnoses. Right? That way, if you meet somebody who says that their doctor had diagnosed them with depression or anxiety or something else, uh, and they say that the only treatment is medication, you won't be intimidated. All right, uh, All right. so it's, this is a book. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, fourth edition. It's a book. This book was first published in 1994. It was again revised in 2000. The fifth edition of the DSM came out in May of 2013. Um, The first edition, the very first edition, uh, was published in 1952 by the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, And then later, in 1980, the DSM III was published. And the DSM III was considered to be this kind of a, a landmark, a hallmark transformation for the field of psychiatry. And basically, what the DSM is, is, is a book that lists uh, certain quote-unquote diagnoses or disorders. And what happened is you get a bunch of committees and subcommittees of psychiatrists and psychologists, a few psych- more psychiatrists and a few psychologists, and they get together to collectively decide how to assign or characterize a constellation of behaviors to a specific quote-unquote diagnosis. Okay. And I think I said that here on number five, each of the mental disorders is conceptualized as a clinically significant behavior or psychological syndrome. Um, So it is just kind of a way to talk about um, symptoms and describe things kind of in shorthand, right? Like I would say uh, to you, there is an animal that's walking around, it's got uh, four legs, it has a wagging tail, it's got uh, sharp pointy ears, and it's got, uh, you know, um, teeth, right? a particular type of teeth, that's a dog, right? We were just going to call that a dog, right? Um, and so in the DSM, that's the idea, is like we want to describe, when we say that somebody is struggling with anxiety, we want to use the same terminology and define what we, what we mean by that, okay? So prior to the DSM, um, and especially prior to dsm three, where it kind of started to become more ubiquitous in use, physicians and psychiatrists had very little uniformity of how they would diagnose and treat certain conditions. It was just kind of willy-nilly. There was no criteria uh, by which we said, well, I think you have anxiety. I don't really know, but it seems like you have anxiety, so I'm going to treat you this way. Um, there, see, and, and the reason is because there is no lab test. There's no genuinely objective criteria for the diagnosis of the conditions in the DSM, right? You don't do a body scan. You don't do a blood test. You don't do an x-ray and say, like, you have anxiety, right? Um, it's you meet certain criteria and we will just say that you do have anxiety uh, or depression or any these other things, all right? So the DSM provides a way to label people's behaviors and provides a common language to describe certain conditions, right? And I'm gonna try to, you'll see, I'm gonna try to, to stay away from the, the, the use of the word disease, right, because I think disease implies that a person is kind of a, a, a victim of a biological process that has befallen them. So I'll, I'll try to use the word disorder Uh, We know that the secular world uses the word disease uh, fairly freely. So the DSM functions as kind of a psychiatric uh, Bible, if you will. It's put together by committees of men and women, revised and revised and revised and revised over the years, right? It is used to describe behavior. We contrast that to the Bible, right? The Bible is God's inspired word. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is unchanging. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? Anything that the world could come up with would never hold a candle to the Bible. So, uh, just for example, if a person goes to see a doctor, let's say they make up or they exaggerate their symptoms, right? If they fabricate them, right? Whether it's to get out of work or to get out of jury duty or to get sympathy, and I see this with fair amount of regularity, uh, the DSM would call that factitious disorder or even Munchausen syndrome. That's what the DSM would say. Like, oh, you you know, this person is suffering from factitious disorder because they are having these exaggerated symptoms that are not real. Right? The Bible calls that sin, right? Lying and deceit. But the world—they don't call that sin. They don't like to talk about sin, of course, because it makes them think about God. So they'll say that you have Munchausen syndrome or factitious disorder. Right? If you have a problem with anger, you could be diagnosed with intermittent explosive disorder. Right? And so you could say it's not a problem with self-control or unbiblical anger. It's, oh, you know, sorry about that, you guys. This is my IED working up again, right? right? So you see, that's, that is the world's disease model of mental health disorders. All right. Uh, I'm gonna give you four, a few more examples and a lot more detail. And um, let see, is that the next slide, yet? Oh, not that yet. Not, no, not to that one yet. All right. Uh, as we go through these diagnoses from the DSM-IV, I want you to think about what the Bible has to say about these conditions or disorders. All right. So I'm gonna go fairly fast. We're gonna talk about generalized anxiety disorder, and we said last week that is kind of the most commonly diagnosed mental health disorder in the world. Uh, we're gonna talk about panic disorder, depression. Uh, we might talk about bipolar disorder, depending on how our time goes, and schizophrenia. All right. Uh, but first, there's a caveat. First, there's a, I want to slow down before we get to that part here. My intention here is to educate and equip us regarding the world's perspective on mental health issues, and then confront that with the word of God. Okay? But I want to tread cautiously and compassionately and carefully, because I know that it's likely that there are a number of people here, precious saints or loved ones of people here, who have been diagnosed with, quote unquote, mental health issues. And I put that in quotes not to make light of or to minimize anyone's situation or suffering, but to indicate that secular psychology in the world have a different perspective than that of the Bible and biblical counseling. So again, please understand my heart. I don't want to make light, we don't want to make light of anyone who is suffering or has suffered from these issues, right? Those feelings are very real. Those struggles are very real. And I take those seriously, we take those seriously. But I also want you to know that our loving and gracious Heavenly Father is a compassionate God and he offers an eternal hope that the world of secular psychology cannot compare to. Okay, so slow down for that part. We're gonna go fast for the next section, okay? So this is generalized anxiety disorder according to the DSM-IV. Okay, generalized anxiety according to the DSM-IV. Number one is characterized by chronic excessive anxiety and worry about a number of life events and activities lasting greater than six months. Number two, difficulty controlling the worry. Number three, Worries or anxieties associated with three or more of the following, so they have these criteria. You have to have at least three of these in order to be quote-unquote diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge, becoming easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating or mind going blank, irritability, muscle tension, or sleep disturbance, whether it's either early insomnia, you can't fall asleep, or restless sleep. And I see this all the time in my clinic. Like I said, I have maybe like up to 30% of my patients struggle with this, right? And so some of the questions I ask them, are like, you know, um, do you have a hard time falling asleep? And they say, yes, oh, I can't turn my mind off. And so I ask them, well, what are the things that you're thinking about before you go to sleep? And it's usually that particular area of concern, right? It's like, you know, family, uh, relationships, work, finances, uh, those kinds of things. Those are those common things that people uh, worry about. And so I ask them those questions. What, you know, when you have a free moment, when you're, where does your mind wander to? It's a nice diagnostic question. What what do you think about when you have free time, when you you let your mind wander? What is it you're thinking about? Uh, And sometimes it is. oftentimes it is whatever particular circumstance that is causing this. All right, Uh, number four, these worries or anxieties interfere with social or occupational functioning or cause a person clinically significant distress. Number five, it's not due to the physiologic effects of a substance or general medical condition. If you drink three Red Bulls, you're going to feel anxious. Okay? Except for maybe Tom Furco who drinks like 12 cups of coffee a day. But um, if you drink a lot of caffeine, you are going to feel anxious. And so we're saying generalized anxiety is not due to a physiologic effect of a substance or a general medical condition. Likewise, people come to me with anxiety. A lot of times one of the things I do is I'll check their thyroid. If they have a thyroid abnormality, they could feel anxious. But in actuality, it is the thyroid that is causing that. Okay? So that's generalized anxiety disorder. Next. Oops, go back. Panic disorder, again, this is according to the DSM-IV. Uh, panic disorder is a discrete period of intense fear or discomfort in which four or more of the following symptoms developed abruptly and reached a peak within 10 minutes. Now, why did they choose four of these? Fairly arbitrarily. Again, this is just secular psychology trying to, when I say that somebody's got a panic attack or panic disorder, what do I mean by that? Well, they have to kind of meet this criteria. But again, this is, there's no blood test for this, there's no scan, and it it's fairly subjective. All right, so a panic attack feels like this. Palpitations, pounding of the heart or accelerated heart rate. Sweating, trembling or shaking. Sensations of shortness of breath or smothering. Feeling of choking, chest pain or discomfort. Nausea or abdominal distress. Feeling dizzy, unsteady, lightheaded or faint. Derealization, feelings of unreality, depersonalization. Feeling like you're detached from yourself. Fear of losing control or going crazy. Fear of dying, paresthesias numbness or tingling sensations, people will say that their mouth feels dry, they get a tingling sensation around their mouth, they get cotton mouth, they may get tunnel vision, like uh, their vision seems to become dark on the outside and they start to get tunnel vision. They may have chills or hot flushes. People feel like they're having a heart attack. It's a real thing, right? People do feel this. Uh, They feel that they may, they feel like they're going to die. Some people have called, I know people have called 911 because they're having a panic attack. It's not uncommon. It's not uncommon to people go to the emergency room and they do all these tests, they do the mega workup, MRI, CT, AC blood tests, EKG, heart scans, all these kinds of things. They're like, what was it, what was it? Oh, it was a panic attack. The symptoms are very alarming. And, um, and, and sometimes even just thinking about, for people who've, I have patients, or I know people who have struggled with panic attacks, sometimes just thinking about the symptoms of a panic attack can cause a panic attack. Right? It's very suggestible. So some people here may just see these things like, oh my gosh, they may maybe be feeling it even right now. So I'll switch to the next slide. But it is really real, okay? And the interesting thing is, I think, and we'll talk about this a little bit later when we get to Roman numeral three under the mind-body connection, right? That, that they're not making these physical symptoms up, right? If you check their heart rate, their heart rate is fast, right? You, you check their palms, their palms are sweaty, right? If there are physiologic, real, biologic responses to this and the interesting thing is that it just sometimes starts with thoughts, right? Thinking. Um, and so that is the mind body connection that we'll, we'll get to again in uh, room number three. Okay, uh, next major depression, right? We talked about this last week a little bit. The lifetime prevalence of major depression is 7 to 12% in men and 20 to 25% for women, right? It's very common for women to struggle with major depression. Um, a patient with major depression will experience at least one of the symptoms from category one and three or more symptoms from category two for a total of at least five out of nine symptoms. These symptoms must be present for most of the day, nearly every day, for at least two weeks. It only takes two weeks of symptoms to be considered to have major depression. And I oftentimes, I have to tell my patients, this, again, this is the secular world, I say, like, you know, uh, I've diagnosed you with major depression. It's going to be on your paperwork. I want you to let you know that the word major doesn't mean that the doctor thinks you're majorly depressed. Anything that goes on for two weeks is considered by definition, quote unquote, technically major depression, right? Because some patients are like, oh my gosh, the doctor thought I was majorly depressed. I don't feel that depressed. But it's interesting because I have patients who fill out these surveys, right? They fill out the surveys about depression and they click all of these ones and they would meet the criteria of depression, except they used to say, I, was, I just had the flu, right? I just, I just had the flu. Um, but they could be misdiagnosed as major depression. So category number one, persistently depressed mood. Category number two, pervasive anhedonia. Anhedonia means a loss of interest or pleasure, right? Like, I was sick in bed with the flu. I just didn't feel like doing anything, right? Category number two, sleep disorder, a problem sleeping. Either it's um, not getting enough sleep or it's sleeping too much. Next, uh, change in weight or appetite, right? Some people say like, oh, just my appetite is dead. It just killed my appetite. Or they say like, you know what? I'm an emotional eater. I've been overeating because of my depression. Fatigue, loss of energy. They're just tired. Don't have any energy. Psychomotor retardation, agitation. They feel they could feel anxious, right? They could feel slow or anxious, either one. Difficulty concentrating, indecisiveness. People would say, like, yeah, I can't. I try to read something, and I just have to read it like three times. I just can't concentrate. I have problems concentrating. They may have feelings of of, of guilt or low self-esteem. They may have recurrent thoughts of death or suicide. So again, if they have. Uh, um, one of the symptoms for category one, and three or more symptoms for category two, for a total of five out of these total nine symptoms, and more than two weeks, then you can be di- diagnosed with major depression. All right, bipolar disorder. Um, I guess we have time for that a little bit. Hopefully we'll see. Uh, bipolar disorder, also called manic depressive. Uh, at least one manic episode, that's the next slide, we'll talk about that in a second. At least one manic episode, there has previously been at least one major depressive episode, manic episode, or mixed episode. The mood episodes are not better accounted for by schizoaffective disorder and is not superimposed on schizophrenia, schizophreniform disorder, delusional disorder, or psychotic disorder not otherwise specified. So what is a manic episode? So sorry that there's a lot of information. I did want to try to get it on one slide, so, and these slides will be available um, to you online uh, after our session, either this week or next week. Uh, so what is the definition of a manic episode? Um, Uh, Number one, a distinct period of abnormality and persistently elevated expansive or irritable mood lasting at least one week or any duration if hospitalization is necessary. Number two, during the period of mood disturbance, three or more of the following symptoms have persisted. Four, if the mood is only irritable and have been present to a significant degree. Inflated self-esteem or grandiosity, decreased need for sleep, more talkative than usual or pressure to keep talking, insomnia or hypersomnia nearly every day, psychomotor agitation or retardation nearly every day, observable by others, a flight of ideas or subjective experience that thoughts are racing, distractibility, in goal-directed activity or psychomotor agitation, excessive involvement in pleasurable activities that have a high potential for painful consequences. Number three, the mood disturbance is sufficiently severe to cause marked impairment in occupational functioning or in usual social activities or relationships with others or to necessitate hospitalization to prevent harm or self to others, or there are psychotic features. Number four, the symptoms are not due to the direct physiologic effects of a substance, or a drug, a medication, or other treatment, or a general medical condition. All right, that is the criteria for the diagnosis of a manic uh, episode and bipolar disorder. Um, All right. I've had patients like that with, with bipolar disorder. Um, and I remember one when I was in medical school I was doing a rotation at an inpatient psychiatric facility. So this is a patient who was a resident there. She was staying there for however long she was. And she was convinced that she was engaged to Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck was a famous actor uh, a number of years ago who was considered a heartthrob by that you know, particular generation, right? And so she gave me an invi- a handwritten invitation on a napkin that I was invited to her wedding with Tom Selleck, right? And, uh, again, this is kind of flighty ideas, ideas of grandiosity. Sometimes they're hyper-religious. Sometimes they f- people will feel that they have had, uh, you know, a revelation from God or that they have some kind of celebrity encounter. And so she handed me this invitation to nap, and she says, all of the guests are going to drive up to Santa Barbara together, and Tom's got a private plane going to be waiting for there. He's going to whisk us all over to Hawaii where we'll participate in, in the wedding ceremony. Um, but it was very real to her. And she spoke very fast, and she had just a lot of energy uh, she was kind of classic for uh, bipolar disorder. All right, uh, letter F, schizophrenia. Uh, and this is often confused in normal parlance with multiple personality disorder. I think when sometimes people, um, they joke about, and you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna joke about it, but sometimes people can in, in, in out there can joke about schizophrenia, they are actually meaning multiple personality disorder. Some of the characteristic symptoms of schizophrenia, two or more of the following, each present for a significant portion of time during a one month period, delusions, which are um, uh, false fixed uh, thoughts. Uh, hallucinations where they either hear or see things that are not there. Disorganized speech patterns, sometimes there can be derailment or incoherence to the speech. They can have grossly disorganized or catatonic behavior. And there are some negative symptoms, either affecting uh, um, um, the affect or their, um, their facial features can just be very flat. Um, they can have a volition, a lack of speech, a lack of will. Number two, uh, there is social occupational dysfunction for a significant portion of the time since the onset of the disturbance. One or more areas of functioning such as work, interpersonal relationships, or self-care are markedly below the level achieved prior to the onset, so there's a significant change in their ability to care for themselves or to interact relationally with schizophrenia. Number three, there's a duration. There's continuous signs of the disturbance that persist for at least six months. Number four, schizoaffective disorder and mood disorder with psychotic features have been ruled out. They're not suffering from some other disorder. And number five, the disturbance is not due, again, to the direct physiologic effect of a substance or a general medical condition. All right. All right. So, again, this is just kind of where we've been. Uh, This is, again, we're talking about the intro to DSM and in the box area there, we've been talking about the different uh, common diagnoses uh, from the DSM. I wanted to mention that in 1952, the American Psychological Society, um, they listed homosexuality in the DSM as a sociopathic personality disturbance. Right? And we knew this kind of in our culture in 1952, if you think back, I mean, not, not all of us were around back then, but uh, what the culture was like, that the homosexuality was not, of course, as embraced as it is today. And so the DSM, the American Psychiatric Association, they diagnosed people with homosexuality as having a sociopathic personality disturbance or a disease. Homosexuality remained in the DSM until May 1974. In the seventh printing of DSM number two, 1974, the diagnosis of homosexuality was replaced with the category of sexual orientation disturbance. Again, it was still categorized as abnormal behavior in 1974, not a disease but uh, not a personality disturbance, but a sexual orientation disturbance. In May of 2014, the American Psychiatric Society, they released the fifth edition of the DSM. In this document, the first new edition in 10 years, the American Psychiatric Association described pedophilia as a sexual orientation. Months later, after intense criticism, the American Psychiatric Association, they published a press release stating that this classification was a mistake and that they meant to call pedophilia a sexual interest. So again, this is just, you know, the DSM is just the opinions of the world, right? The opinions of secular psychology, and you see how even in their, their opinions have changed over the years. From 1952 when homosexuality was considered a disease, right? And then into 2014 where pedophilia was considered just merely a sexual orientation, which is actually fairly normal, and then because of the backlash they had to re, uh, reissue and re- rethink what they were saying. So again, this is it's just opinion. All right, I want to talk about, next, um, psychotropic medication. We're on letter G, psychotropic medication. Psychotropic medication, all right. All right, so the definition. Uh, psychotropic medication is any medication capable of, fe- of affecting the mind, emotions, and behavior. It's from the Greek, uh, psycho, meaning the mind, and trope a turning or a turning of the mind, right? That's from Merriam, uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Psychotropic uh, in another um, dictionary is, uh, as an adjective, is affecting mental activity, behavior, or perception as a mood-altering drug. As a noun, a psychotropic drug is a, is a tranquilizer, a sedative, or an antidepressant. So psychotropic drugs are those that affect function, behavior, or experience of the mind. While their exact mechanism of action is unknown, Psychotropic drugs are thought to act upon the biochemistry of the brain and positively affect thinking mechanisms, emotional control, mood, and other behavioral processes. So that's from a lexicon of psychiatry that you see there. Interesting that they said positively affect. Is that in there? Positively affect. That's a nice value statement about that, right? Uh, Positively affect thinking mechanisms, emotional control, mood, and other behavioral processes. Okay. Um... Some examples of psychotropic drugs, again, I'm not expecting you to look at this, we're not gonna read this, Um, but it is available. It'll be on the slides if you're interested about certain drugs, if they're psychotropic or not. There's a list here from the, I don't know, what's that, National Allied Mental Health something, something, a couple of lists of commonly prescribed psychotropic medications, drugs. All right, I wanna talk about advertising a little bit. Um, because This is an interesting connection to psychotropic drugs. In 1997, the FDA loosened regulations of marketing to, of drugs to consumers. Uh, the 1990, 1997 change in direct-to-consumer advertising laws unleashed an unprecedented onslaught of commercials. Right? Prior to that law change, um, drug companies, right, pharmaceutical companies, big pharma as they're called, were not allowed to market their drugs to people. You could market, prior to this year, 1997, you could market to doctors, and they spent a lot of time marketing to physicians and people who would prescribe these medications, but prior to 1997, those of us who remember TV in 1997, or ads, there were no advertisements in general magazines or on TV of these psychotropic medications until 1997. By 1999, just two years after the law was changed, the average American was exposed to nine prescription drug advertisements on television every day. The number of television ads increased 40-fold between 1997 and 2000. So the, the law states that advertisements can give it the drug name, it can name the condition um, that it's supposed to be treating, without disclosing all of the risks. Ads must mention important risks and provide a statement explaining that additional information is available. Ask your doctor to see if this is right for you, you guys have heard all that before, right? Ads, um, see. an estimated annual cost of $2.5 billion, pharmaceutical advertising to consumers has indeed made drug companies and their brand products household names. Right? Prior to 1997, a lot of these psychotropic medications you maybe never even heard of, but now you can't open up any magazine or watch TV for very long without somebody saying, ask your doctor to see if this is right for you. Uh, and the, the drug companies have spent $2.5 billion not on research, not on treatment, but on advertising. It's a big industry. Advertising makes you feel a certain way. It makes you feel like you're missing something, your life is not complete, that you would be better off with something more. The purpose of advertising is to sow discontent into the audience's mind and fear that you're missing out. Okay? Advertising, the main emotion of advertising is actually fear. All right, so I'll give you some slides, some examples, you may have seen these. You can probably, do, you can just look at this slide, and you know the diagnosis that they're targeting, right? This is for Cymbalta. And I even described some of these under the diagnosis of, of uh, depression, loss of interest, anxious, overwhelmed, unexplained aches and pains, sad, fatigue, right? She says, I just feel down all of the time. right? so this, this This is a a slide or an advertisement for Subalta. Next, are you still depressed? Anxiety, insomnia, low energy, currently on an SSL. You're already on a a psychotropic, but are you still depressed? Are you still suffering? It may be time to make a change. She's thinking about it. She's made the change. Break the cycle of unresolved depression. Switch to Effexor achieve remission, sustain remission, go beyond remission, re- reduce recurrence. That's Effexor. Next, Lexapro, right? Look at this woman, she's smiling. She's got a strappy a young lad in the background. She is breaking through the bonds of depression and anxiety. Lexapro, power to enjoy life. Right? Provigil, cut through the fog of excessive sleepiness, right? Excessive sleepiness is a disease that you need to be treated for and ProVigil could be the medication that would help. Look at all the poor people in the background. They're dealing with excessive sleepiness, but this woman in the front, she's on ProVigil. She's broken through the fog, and she's awake and alert, ready to enjoy life. All right, science. And I'll put this in quotes. Science, quote unquote, would have us believe that we feel a certain way because of the chemical levels in our brains. I shared last week, the first introduction that I had to this idea was my friend in high school whose mom had depression, and he told me, his name is Ron, Ron told me my mom has been di- diagnosed with a chemical imbalance. So there's lots of scientific theories about neurotransmitters, and we're just gonna briefly skim on them. There's the serotonin uh, neurotransmitter theory, the dopamine neurotransmitter theory, and the gabapentin or the, gamma, the GABA uh, theory. So one slide each at a time. This is the dopamine and the GABA neurotransmitter theory talking about nerve synapses in the brains, Right, The neurotransmitters that occur there and their ability to affect how you feel, how you think, et cetera, et cetera. Currently the most popular class of medications is the SSRIs, Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors. And we'll get to that one in a second. This is, again, the GABA receptor model, uh, neuro- norepinephrine neurotransmitter theory. And serotonin neurotransmitters, this is the prevailing theory right now going on in secular psychology and psychiatry that you feel the way that you do and you think the way you do because of serotonin. And if we can affect the levels of serotonin in your brain, and we've not even been able to prove that we can do that, but we're trying to, and that's what the medication is supposed to do, that we can make you feel better, different. All right. We're going to look at this Zoloft commercial here real fast and uh, just listen in and see what it says.
1: anxious whatever you do you feel lonely and don't enjoy the things you once loved things just don't feel like they used to these are some symptoms of depression a serious medical condition affecting over 20 million americans while the cause is unknown depression may be related to an imbalance of natural chemicals between nerve cells in the brain prescription zoloft works to correct this imbalance you just shouldn't have to feel this way anymore Only your doctor can diagnose depression. Zoloft is not for everyone. People taking MAOIs or Pimazide shouldn't take Zoloft. Side effects may include dry mouth, insomnia, sexual side effects, diarrhea, nausea, and sleepiness. Zoloft is not habit forming. Talk to your doctor about Zoloft, the number one prescribed brand of its kind. Zoloft, when you know more about what's wrong, you can help make it right.
0: So there's a lot of things in that commercial, right? This is one of the original antidepressant commercials that came out uh, around 1997. Um, There's a lot of claims that this uh, commercial makes um, that are unproven, right? It says there's a dramatization. It says there's a chemical imbalance and those kinds of things. But we don't really know what what the cause is, if there is a cause. Um, So the next slide that we're going to talk about is actually. That's just to lighten the mood. Um, science, quote-unquote science, refuting science, okay, because what the drug companies and what secular psychology would have you do is they would have you say, like, we know these things to be true, right, that you are struggling with depression because of chemical imbalances, that you're struggling because you have, uh, you know, these different neurotransmitters that are out of balance, and so we need to fix those things, the feelings that you have, the emotions that you have, the struggles that you have, are not because of sin, they don't talk about sin but it's because of chemicals and we have the chemicals to help that's what the world wants you to think all right so but but there's a fair amount of even just secular psychiatrists and secular psychologists who say like you know what we don't really know what's going on in the mind you can't make those claims and this is secular psychology here refuting secular psychology okay so we'll see this Uh, Quote, although it is often stated with great confidence that depressed people have a serotonin or norepinephrine deficiency, the evidence actually contradicts these claims. This is Professor Emeritus in Neuroscience in Blaming the Brain, 1998, which reviews the evidence for the serotonin hypothesis. Next one. A serotonin deficiency for depression has not been found. Psychiatrist Joseph Glenmullen, clinical instructor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, in a book called Prozac Backlash. Next, little lengthy quote. Uh, I I spent the first several years of my career doing full-time research on brain serotonin metabolism, but I never saw any convincing evidence that any psychiatric disorder, including depression, results from a deficiency of brain serotonin. In fact, we cannot measure brain serotonin levels in living human human beings, so there's no way to test this theory. Some neuroscientists would question whether the theory is even viable since the brain does not function in this way as a hydraulic system. Stanford psychiatrist David Burns. Indeed, no abnormality of serotonin in depression has ever been demonstrated. Psychiatrist David Healy. So again, uh, secular psychiatry makes these claims, but there are other secular psychiatrists who say, like, you can't make those claims. You don't know. There's no blood test for serotonin. Right? There's no way to put a probe into the brain to check a person's serotonin levels, but secular psychiatry or some camps of secular psychiatry and the drug companies, of course, would have you believe that the reason you feel the way you do, the way that you struggle because the way, you, the reason you struggle because of the way you're struggling is because of uh, serotonin. Again, that's just the theory. So this is a New York Times article. Uh, I think it came out, let's see, what it came out? March of, a couple of years ago from the New York Times. And it was kind of a review, right? It it's, uh, says, do antidepressants work? Sub Subtitle, the most comprehensive study on them has recently been published showing mostly modest effects. The researchers found 74 studies with more than 12,500 patients for drugs approved between 1987 and 2004. About half of these trials had positive results in that the antidepressant performed better than a placebo. The other half were negative. But if you looked only in the published literature, you'd get a much different picture. Nearly all of the positive studies are there, but only three of the negative studies appear in the literature as negative. 22 were never published, and 11 were published, but repackaged so that they appeared positive. So what this article is saying is that there is a publication bias. Studies that show a positive effect of antidepressants are published. But about 49% of the studies, about half of the studies, which showed a neutral or negative effect of antidepressants were not published. So there is a selection bias, you know, and that's because... um, Publications, they want to show that we are making a change. There's something that we've discovered. We found something new, right? So the studies that show, like, actually, there's nothing new. This doesn't work. They don't publish those ones. right? But they only There's a selection bias to the ones that they publish. All right. Uh, a second meta-analysis published that year uh, used FDA data instead of the peer review literature. So we're not just looking at literature uh, journals that are published right, publicly, but let's look at when you create a study, you have to register with the FDA. They asked a different question. Researchers wondered if the effectiveness of a study was related to the baseline levels of depression of its participants. The results suggested yes. The effectiveness of antidepressants was limited for those with moderate depression and small for those with severe depression. The take-home message from these two studies was that the effectiveness of antidepressants has been overstated. And that the benefit might be limited to far fewer patients than were actually using the drugs. So I actually I even looked up this data this morning in a journal that has uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, right? JAMA Psychiatry, uh, early publication showed that when they do studies on antidepressants, maybe about fifty-four percent of people may feel some benefits from the antidepressants, right? But they also do these randomized, uh, controlled, double-blind studies where they test antidepressants versus placebo. About 40% of people on placebo will have the same effect. So how do you know, is it the placebo or the medication? We don't know, right? And especially if you take into account publication bias, that changes the the scales altogether, because we're saying that well maybe 54% of people will benefit from from, uh, the medication, compared to 40% of placebo, that's still 14%. That's still maybe a significant difference, but not when you take into account publication bias, where the journals will just publish the ones that have positive results, and suppress almost 49% of the articles or the studies that show no effect or negative effect from antidepressants. So this is a fairly significant controversy, as you would imagine, in the secular world. Um, This article, uh, Methodological Flaws, Conflicts of Interest, and Scientific Fallacies, Implications for the Evaluation of Antidepressants, Efficacy, and Harm, from another journal called Frontiers in Psychiatry. And this author states, the strong reliance on industry-funded research results in an uncritical approval of antidepressants. Due to several flaws, such as publication and reporting bias, as I just mentioned before, unblinding of outcome assessors, concealment and recording, a recoding of serious adverse effects, events, the efficacy of antidepressants is systematically overestimated, and harm is systematically underestimated. Therefore, I conclude that antidepressants are largely ineffective and potentially harmful and one of the most famous journals journals, is the New England Journal of Medicine. The New England Journal of Medicine, this article that was published uh, about 10 years ago, selective publication of antidepressant trials and its influence on apparent efficacy. Eric Turner, MD, who's from Oregon Health and Science University a School of Medicine, and colleagues found in reviewing studies that bias in outcome reporting was common, meaning that positive outcomes in trials were emphasized much more than negative ones. Publication bias was one of the most significant problems. If the FDA determined that a study was positive, it was five times as likely to be published in the journal than if the results were negative. And this is from the the Journal of the American Medical Association in Psychiatry. This is a long slide. I just want to, and you're welcome to look at the rest of it later, but just the the bottom line is, according to published literature, it appeared that 94% of the trials conducted were positive. By contrast, the FDA analysis showed that 51% were positive. if you look at the literature and you look at all the articles that say SSRIs, antidepressants, work, you will see a 94 percent know, positive publication rate, but when you look at how many trials have been actually registered with the FDA, it shows that only 51 of, percent of those trials were positive. All right. These findings mirror what we have found previously with the same drugs when used to treat major depression with antipsychotics, Turner said in a statement. When their studies don't turn out well, you usually won't know about it. You usually won't know it from peer-reviewed literature. Although most of the antidepressants are safe to use and well-tolerated, the inflated study, uh, study results likely influence clinicians' views on the efficacy of the drugs and thus the prescribing behavior. It's because we have been led to believe that antidepressants are a lot more successful at treating depression than they really are. And finally, this is the co-author of that study, there is less evidence for value of these drugs than published studies would have you believe. Craig Williams, PharmD of the uh, Oregon Health Science University College of Pharmacy, co-author of the study. All right. So, if there is so much controversy and no clear proof, then why do so many scientists, physicians, psychiatrists, psychologists, believe so strongly in the serotonin or neurotransmitter theory? I have two answers for you. The first one is financial gain, okay? So this is 2006 data, and we see of the top 100 drugs that were prescribed in the, in the United States, one, two, three, four, five of those drugs were SSRIs, antidepressants, right? And the sales are in the billions. This is for the year 2006. You see that Effexor, which we had an advertisement for before, was the number six prescribed medication in the world. Uh, in, in that year and had sales of $2.25 billion. Lexapro, $2.1 billion. Zoloft, $1.7, $1.8 billion. Wellbutrin $1.7 billion. Cymbalta uh, was the number 35 prescribed medication in the world and $1.1 billion for that year alone. I, re- I, I, I refreshed the information. I looked back to see what it was like currently. And, uh, you know, it takes a while to compile the data. So the the most current year they have is 2013. As of 2013, Cymbalta had climbed to number four prescribed medication in the world with an annual sales amount of $5.1 billion. So the, the question was again, if there's so much controversy, no clear proof, then why do so many scientists believe so strongly in the serotonin or neurotransmitter theory? First is financial gain. Second, is non-existent or bad theology. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. Psychotropic medications can help with the symptoms of depression and anxiety, but that doesn't prove the neurotransmitter hypothesis. All right. So again, I, I don't want us to get super bogged down with all of these definitions, the criteria, diagnoses, those kinds of things, medications, psychotropics. I, I do want to educate us so that we are familiar with what the world considers and how the world deals with these things. Um, I'm going to end with more scripture. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. And before I get to that, too, I, I just want to mention, my guess is that Statistically speaking, there are people here who are on psychotropic medications or who have been on psychotropic medications. And so I wanna be careful about how we speak, right? We, we don't wanna condemn, right? But we do wanna educate, and even just from the secular perspective, or how that there is um, controversy with regard to the efficacy of these medications, right? In, in some people's minds, these medications are no different than placebo. There is a strong placebo effect. If your doctor prescribes you something, says this is gonna help you, Right? There is a very strong placebo effect that this may help you, but the, in reality, right? Even secular psychologists—they don't know if these things really work. But we have the word of God, right? First Corinthians chapter two, verse six to sixteen. Yet we do not. We, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Right? There are competing worldviews. Right? There are competing mindsets in this world. There is the secular mindset, and there is the biblical mindset. Right? And obviously, if the secular world had the ability to understand the biblical world, Paul here is saying they wouldn't have crucified Christ. But the secular world cannot understand these things. Verse 9, Just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and have and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, The Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Verse 14 here, this is what I wanted to get to. But a natural man, a secular man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we speak a wisdom not of this age. The world does not understand. God has revealed them to us. God has revealed this wisdom to us through the Holy Spirit and through his word. All right. All right. I think my time is up. So we're going to stop there. I'm going to mark this down here where we're at. Um, and we are going to pick this up and continue next week. So hopefully you understand our heart, right? Our heart is to educate you, to equip you, to help you understand what the world considers mental health disorders, and we're going to begin to talk about more about what the Bible has to say about these things and how God has equipped us as believers through his word, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, so that we can live a life that is pleasing to him. All right? Let's pray. Our God, again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance for us to talk about these things. Now, these things are issues and concerns and troubles and trials that affect all of us. Right? We, may, we may not be struggling with these things ourselves, but we, we, I'm sure that we know somebody who is struggling with these things. And so, God, we come before you. We ask that you would give us wisdom as we discern your word, that we would give us faith, that we might believe in your word, that we might believe in, in, in the work of the Holy Spirit, that we might believe in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. That you have destined us for a life that is full of joy everlasting and that we may have trials in this world yes god that, that that is what you have called us to but there is everlasting joy there is hope in your son jesus christ and we believe those things god we want to believe those things so we ask that you would help us to increase our faith in these areas and give us wisdom as we seek to discern these matters that we might build up the body of christ that we might magnify your name here in our church and among the nations we pray in jesus name Amen.